You're listening to a resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. It is our joy to glorify God by treasuring Jesus in the preaching of His Word. We pray this resource will be a tool used to aid in your relationship with Christ in addition to your local church. Blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Nothing but the blood of Jesus, nothing but the blood. Amen. Good morning, everybody. So glad to be with you this morning. Would you please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through 27. Luke chapter 19, verses 11 through verse 27. That's where we'll be this morning, and that's where the Lord has us as we make our way through Luke's gospel. Uh, today is um, unique and special in this way that we are finishing the journey narrative. Uh, we're finishing Jesus's journey to Jerusalem where he spent so much time teaching us and training the disciples. Uh, we watched where he went. We understood um, the, the, the teachings that he gave the disciples about so many different issues. And now we finish this journey narrative in Luke chapter 19, 11 through 27. If you don't have a Bible, um, you're gonna need to follow along with it. Um, so just grab one in the seat pocket in front of you, turn there, you're gonna wanna follow along and, and understand the word, okay? So that's why we're here, to hear God's voice, um, to hear his words to us, um, and, and the living God will speak to us as we just stick with the text, right? So we finished this journey narrative, and it's unique as well because tonight we're going to finish uh, bibliology in our doctrine. So we're kind of closing the, the, the page, uh, the chapter, the book, so to speak, on two uh, things that we've been doing for a, a while here. Um, and, uh, and so I'm excited about finishing this. Next week you see in verse 28, or the next time we're in Luke here, which I think is in a couple weeks. Pastor Chad will be teaching us next week through a counseling issue. Um, we will enter into Jerusalem in a couple weeks. And uh, the triumphal entry is when Jesus finishes the journey to Jerusalem and then he enters and we see then the passion texts where Jesus then is uh, rejected, he suffers, and he dies, and then he raises and ascends. And so that's where we'll be starting the following week. But um, we're going to take this thing as a whole, 11 through 27. So let's read it all. And, uh, and then we've, we've got some great information here from the Lord. So let's read it. Follow along as I read in, in Luke 19, starting in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. Because he was near to Jerusalem, and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, he said, Therefore, 
A nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10, 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little you shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, and you are to be over five cities. Then another came saying, Lord, here is your mina, which I kept laid away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you, because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put the, my money in, in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has more will be given but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. These are the Lord's words. These are red letter. These are Jesus's words directly from the lips of the Savior. We understand a bit about Jesus from what he says. Out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so we see Jesus and his heart, what he's really like, not um, some fictitious versions of Jesus, but from what we see him act like and speak like directly in his word. Now, let me give you the proposition of this section, the main point here, which is um, maybe a little bit hard to see at first. But the, the authorial intent, the reason why this passage particularly exists, is that Jesus is making clear here what will take place before his future visible kingdom comes. That is to say, what's going to happen between his 
resurrection and ascension and his return. And what Jesus is pointing to here is that what is going to happen during that time is the opportunity to respond to salvation. That's what is going to happen next. After he goes into the passion uh, section or time, he's going to be crucified, he's going to raise, he's going to ascend. And before he ever returns, there is gonna be time of opportunity to respond to his salvation. So Jesus has been teaching about salvation, if you remember this. He's been teaching about the conditions for salvation. He's been talking about uh, praying for the coming of his future kingdom, how to enter his kingdom. Uh, He's been talking about the reward of having his salvation. He's been talking about how his suffering will make salvation possible. He's been talking about the the purpose of his coming, which is to seek and to save. I mean, all of this teaching in the last section of the journey narrative has been about salvation. And really, that's what the whole Bible is about. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. You know, the Old Testament points to the coming of the Savior. The whole time, uh, God is pointing to the Messiah, the Christ who will come. In the Gospels, we get the... The, uh, we get to see the Savior come. And we get to see him bring this salvation. And every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and, and John, it's to be read in light of salvation. These are not just uh, Christian living moral teachings. These are all really in light of the salvation that he brings. And then once we get to Acts, it's the proclamation of the salvation that he brings. And then once we get to the epistles, it's the explanation of the salvation that Jesus brings and how to live it out. And then when we get to Revelation, it's the consummation of salvation that Jesus brings. The entire Bible is about this salvation that the Christ, the Messiah, brings. And here, what Jesus is saying is, before I return, before I come back, it will be the opportunity to respond to this salvation. That's what we're seeing here. In other words, this is what will take place before his visible kingdom arrives. The Jews expected the Messiah to bring a visible kingdom immediately, that when the Christ came, there would be a a prosperous, physical, national kingdom brought by the Messiah. They were mistaken. Jesus first came to bring a spiritual kingdom, salvation, that you enter in by repentance and faith, realizing your sinful condition, realizing uh, your status before God as guilty, your need to be saved from his own wrath, Jesus' atoning work in order to save you, and then responding to him by submitting to him as the Lord. Uh, this This is what must take place first, That's why he came. That was the incarnation. He didn't come in to condemn the world the first time. The second time he will come to condemn the world. But he came to save the world this first time. And then after this salvation, there will be an opportunity to respond. After this work of salvation, there will be an opportunity to respond. And then the Lord will return. And Jesus here is describing this time. It's a time of opportunity 
but it will be a time of rejection. It will be a time of some people experiencing his salvation. And it will be a time of stewardship. Listen now, for those who do experience his salvation, living that out. And this is what he is presenting here to us. And this is fitting for him to tell his disciples. Listen, think about this. As he finishes this journey, he's got a whole bunch of people around him. He's got curious people. He's got true disciples. He's got false disciples. He's got enemies. And before entering this passion period, which is mostly going to be characterized by condemnation and unbelief, if, if, if you read anywhere past this point in any of the Gospels, chronologically, um, there is, is really not a joyful note for the entire time. I mean, it is constant condemnation, constant unbelief, constant accusation, rejection, which leads to his death. But before he enters that period, this is what he is making clear to his disciples, that what they can expect after he resurrects is a time of opportunity to respond to his salvation before he returns. And we're gonna see that there are three real responses. There's only three responses that matter. There's only three categories of response to his salvation. During this time of opportunity, there will really only be three responses. And that is explicit rejection, explicit denial. That's atheism. That is uh, an explicit um, obvious rejection of Jesus as the Christ. There will be, secondly, false disciples. There will be false disciples. Those who claim to know Christ and yet do not. They have never maybe looked at what he really requires to be a Christian, or they have never really understood what it means to be one. They've invented their own way. They've invented their own version of Christianity. Uh, they are not trusting in the sufficiency of God's word for everything that is required for life and godliness. They've, they've made up their own ways about it. They've, you know, even some pastors in the world, they write books as to how to grow a church when Jesus has already told us how to grow a church right? I mean, just it goes from top to bottom, pastors all the way down to the most insignificant person in that sense in the world. They, there will be false disciples across the spectrum who truly believe they know Christ. And then there will be thirdly, true believers, true believers. And those are really the three categories that we find in this text when, he's when he comes back, he will bring his kingdom and he will expose the condition that you're in, in one of those three categories. And so let me just encourage you with this before we look at it. This is the period that we find ourselves in. We are in the time of opportunity. You are in this story, literally. This is the, the time that Jesus is actually speaking of in this section right now. 
The time that you live in is the time that he's speaking of in this section. It's after his resurrection and before his return. And so it would be probably fitting to ask where you find yourself in terms of these three responses. Explicit rejection of the Savior, a false disciple, or a true believer. And you've got to measure that by the word. You can't measure that by your own thoughts. And you can't measure that about, by, by someone else's assurance of your salvation. You've got to measure that by the word. You look at your present state right now. Don't look back to a time when you confessed Christ. Right? Look to your present life right now. This moment, this day, this season in your life. And ask yourself, which one am I? Evidenced by what's required to be his true disciples. So this is the responsibility. This is the opportunity. This is the response that the people have to respond to the king before his return. We're gonna see two basic divisions in this text as we look at these points. Number one is the expectation. I'm just showing you what Jesus is saying as the main point, which I've already explained to you and repeated myself intentionally to, to tell you this. I'm gonna divide now up the text so you can see it for yourself. Verse 11, the expectation. And then, and everything flows really from that expectation in verse 11. That's the reason why he's giving this whole parable is because of the expectation that was there. And then secondly, what we're gonna see is the explanation. The explanation. That is to say the expectation of his coming kingdom and then the explanation of what must happen before his kingdom comes, okay? And so it's pretty clear, but there's some details I'm sure that you're not so clear about. So let's read now. Let's start with the first one, the expectation. Let's read verse 11. It says, as they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable because he was near to Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Now, this is very, very clear, this verse. You should see things like the fact that they heard something before this moment. So you should ask, what, what do you mean these things? They heard these things. You should see here that the reason for him telling the parable is because of two issues. First, because he was near to Jerusalem. So what does that mean? And then secondly, because he, they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. What does that mean? So they heard something. Then he told the parable because they supposed or presupposed or assumed two things that weren't uh, necessarily true or because uh, they didn't fully understand. So let's look at this. This is the wrong expectation that they have. In verse 
9 and 10, we see what verse 11 is referring to. When it says, as they heard these things, what things? Well, we're not changing scenes here. So it's pretty obvious what he's referring to. He's referring to what he spoke to Zacchaeus. And what we can assume then there is that there was more people than just Zacchaeus there around when Jesus spoke that. At that point, the crowd must have been there. The disciples must have been there. The false believers must have been there. People were outside, maybe listening through the window, maybe in the house. We don't know, but they were there. And so as they heard these things, what things? Well, these things of the fact that he came to bring salvation to Israel and to save them. Now think about this for a second. Jesus just spoke of his very purpose, to seek and to save the lost. And he spoke first of this coming to Israel since he is a son of Abraham. That was Jesus's mission to come to his people that he had promised years ago and be a savior for them. But you see, they can interpret even that wrongly. They thought saving meant national salvation. They thought saving meant that they would become a superpower, freed from Rome's grasp, and that they would have uh, um, you know, national dominance. So they even misinterpreted what Jesus was saying there. And because of their misunderstanding, Jesus tells them a parable. Now, this is the reason for the parable. Look at this in verse 11. As they heard these things, he proceeded to tell a parable. So this is the reason why he told the parable, because he was near to Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means the time is drawing near. The time is to focus on his suffering. He's no longer going to be training them it's going to be a time where he's crucified and killed, and then he's going to leave. He's going to ascend. There's no more teaching at that point. He's gone. They need to know now what will take place after the resurrection, and that's a time of opportunity for the salvation that he brings. They're near, and they're expected to see this on the horizon. They're going up right now. Listen, they're going up this, this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. There's this 18-mile journey, and they're ascending right now. They're somewhere in the middle of this. And this sermon here, this parable is probably, I don't know, 10 times longer than what we see here, uh, because he's speaking to them the whole time. And that's usually how it is in the scriptures. For instance, the Sermon on the Mount might take you five to seven minutes to read through it, but, but that's likely the, the summary, the portions of summary of the whole uh, teaching that he gave on the Sermon on the Mount, which probably lasted three to four hours, right? This is just a summary, but he's on this road for 18 miles. He's, he's teaching them from Jericho to Jerusalem, and they're expecting once they get into Jerusalem that this Messiah's kingdom is going to be established, and they are going to be uh, the national power. They're going to be freed from Rome, and they misunderstood what Jesus was saying. And then we see, secondly, because they supposed the kingdom of God was to appear immediately, it's really the same thing. They're near to Jerusalem. There's going to be no more time of teaching. 
There's gonna be a time of rejection and they expected the kingdom to appear now. And here's what Jesus is saying. Listen, there will be an appearance of the physical kingdom. They're not all wrong for expecting that. It's just you can't expect that until the second coming. There's no expectation for that until the second coming. The first coming brings salvation, then opportunity, and then the physical kingdom will come. So he's clearing this up. They suppose the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. Listen, Jesus is the human divine king. He's the Messiah. He's the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament prophecies. He's the Christ. And he reigns. He's in charge. And he's coming to bring salvation. But he will bring a visible kingdom that we will dwell in forever, for all of eternity. For those who respond during this time of opportunity, they will enter. Um, Those who do not respond as he requires will not. You can see here that um, at this point, a lot of things are misunderstood. Let me show you this in Luke 17, 20. It says, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed. That's what he's referring to here. Salvation must come first. It's not an external thing, it's an internal thing. It's a matter of the heart. It's a matter of realizing you're a sinner, repenting and entering his spiritual salvific kingdom first, then his return, right? That's what he's talking about here. And they, they even misunderstood this in Acts. I mean, even if we turn to Acts 1.6, so when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of, of Israel to Israel? I mean, even after his resurrection and then uh, his time of explanation with the disciples, at that point, they still misunderstood. They still thought that he was bringing this physical kingdom immediately. And so they're, they're still misunderstanding this even on into the beginning of, of Acts. But we'll see later that they're going to begin to understand this. In Acts chapter 3, it says this, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that he might send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom we must receive until the time of restoring all things about which was spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. You see here that the, the disciples are starting to get it. In Acts chapter 3, verses 20 through 21, they're saying, This salvation that he brought, this is the one who we have to receive until the coming of the kingdom. And so they're starting to get it around Acts chapter three, but until then, they're completely misunderstanding this. Now, this is important because let me tell you, this is the whole reason why Jesus is giving this parable, because they misunderstood this. They had the wrong expectation. They had the wrong expectation. And Jesus, it doesn't say that they said anything here. So this shows Jesus' omniscience. Did they say they had the wrong expectation? Did they, did they say here that, that uh, they expected the kingdom to come immediately? I don't know. Maybe they did during this journey, or maybe Jesus is just reading their thoughts as he's done before, right? And so let me just point this out before we change the second point. Look at this. It's a big word. You ready? Verse 12. He said what? Therefore. The whole reason he's giving the rest of this is because of what we just learned about. 
the expectation was wrong. That keys you in on the main point of the next part. It's like, oh, what is Jesus really explaining here? Well, he's explaining what must take place before his kingdom actually comes because they misunderstood it. So you gotta follow those words to understand what's being pointed to here. He's saying you're gonna have to wait. Now, let me, let me t- ask you this question. I wonder if you have the wrong expectations of the kingdom of God. I mean, they, they assumed and they, they expected something very different from what was actually gonna take place. I, I wonder if you listen now have the wrong expectations about the kingdom. Maybe you think the kingdom is going to bring you immediate prosperity in your life. Maybe you got into this whole Christian thing because you thought, man, I can be looked, looked at as one of respect in the community because I'm a Christian and I go to church now. Or maybe it's because you thought it would come with health, wealth, and prosperity. Or maybe you thought, I'm gonna pursue this thing because it's, it's gonna be easy. And, um, and my life's gonna get better immediately. Maybe you come in here with the wrong expectations. Maybe you come into church on Sundays with the wrong expectations that this is all about you and what you feel and what you get out of it. And rather than serving a body for the glory of God, maybe you have the wrong expectations about Christianity. And you need to Take heed to Jesus' words here, but also take heed to just his word. Your expectations of Christianity need to come from, from his divine revelation, which is the word of God. So now we see number two, then, the explanation. Verses 12 through 27, the explanation. Now this is packed with good stuff. So get ready, get your mind ready. Now here's the parable that he gives. He says, a nobleman, verse 12, just gonna read it again, went into a far country, follow along, to receive for himself a kingdom and return, calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 10 minas and said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. He said to him, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall be faithful over 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, you are to be over five cities. And then another came and said, Lord, here is your mina, which I have laid away in a handkerchief, for I was afraid of you because you are a severe man. You take what you did not deposit. You reap what you did not sow. He said to him, I will condemn you with your own words, you wicked servant. You know that I was a severe man, taking what I did not deposit and reaping what I did not sow. Why then did you not put my money in a bank? And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. He said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I will tell you that everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. 
But as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Starting in verse 12. We see here, we're introduced by Jesus. This is a parable. This is a fictional story meant to point us to a spiritual truth. Uh, Parable means to put alongside. It's a story that's alongside a truth to make clear a particular spiritual truth. He says here, there's a noble man. Verse 12, you see that? See that? All right. There is a nobleman. And literally in the Greek, it means there's a man who is a man of noble birth. There's a man of noble birth. Okay? That is to say a man with a kingly lineage. This is a man who has a kingly lineage. He's in line to be a what? A king. He's in line to be a king. And it says that he went into a far country. Now, let me tell you this, because you have to understand this in order to understand the parable. At this time, the Jews were occupied by who? Rome. And what would need to happen when a king was to receive a kingdom, especially from the Jews who were occupied by Rome, is that they would have to go up from Jerusalem, from wherever their region was that they were going to rule, and they would travel up to Rome, and then Rome, they would receive um, a verification, they would receive permission, they would be ordained in a sense, uh, and proclaimed to be the king of the region that they're requesting to be king over. Now, this doesn't happen just randomly. You don't just walk up and say, hey, can I be king over this area? These people were in line. These people were in line through their lineage to be king over a certain region of the Jews, and yet they had to go up to Rome and get permission from them. This happened with Herod the Great. Um, Herod the Great uh, had to receive his permission from Mark Antony in 40 BC. He reigned until 4 BC, okay, so a pretty long reign. And after his reign, and we've read this before, I think all the way back in, I don't know, Luke chapter, I don't know, I won't even say, but early on in Luke, right? We read about the Herods. Well, Herod had distributed his kingdom, planned to distribute his kingdom to all of his sons, who were all evil, by the way. One of them was named Archelaus, and he was to be the king of Judea, okay? And so at this point, Um, all these people would know this story. All of these people near Jericho because his palace was actually built in Jericho, Archelaus. He went up to Jerusalem, I mean to Rome, to get permission to reign over this region. Now, before he went up to Rome to reign over this region, he slaughtered 3,000 Jews at the first Passover that he was king over. So you would be established as a king, and then you'd have to kind of go up and get it confirmed in Rome and, and, and come back. And when he kind of assumed the responsibility after his father, Herod the Great, had died, he slaughters 3,000 Jews, and uh, this is before he goes up to Rome. Now, you can expect what would happen from the, the Jews. The Jews then, what would happen is they would follow the man up to Rome, 
And they would tell the Roman rule, the, the governor, we don't want this man to reign over us, right? And so this man who was supposed to go up to Rome, receive his kingdom, and then come back and reign over the people, they would be followed by, here, Archelaus was followed by the people who he was supposed to reign over, and they said, we don't want this man to reign over us. And so what happened with Archelaus is that he went up and Rome told him, listen, uh, you know, the politics, right? They just, let's just kind of meet in the middle somewhere and compromise, right? And so what they told him was, you can, you're going to be king, you're going to act as king, you're going to function as king, but we're not going to call you king until you gain the, the favor of your people. And it turns out that Archelaus never received or never uh, achieved the favor of the people, and he was taken out of office by Rome soon after this, right? But here's what Jesus is referring to. And they all know this story because this palace is in Jericho. I mean, they all know this story. They're from going from uh, Jericho to Jerusalem right now. And Jesus is giving this parable in a way that they would understand what, they mean, what, what he means by this. They would have a picture of this in their head. Now, I want you to notice here, Jesus says that this nobleman goes into a what? far country. It's interesting here because Jesus is noting the time between his present time here and his return and that it's going to be long. Because in other times in, the, in, the, in the, the gospels, Jesus has said that the time is going to be what? Short. And so this is kind of the, um, the picture here, there's going to be a delayed consummation Jesus is referring to. He's going to receive his kingdom. It's going to be delayed. And until that time comes, something is going to happen, right? Something's going to happen. Now, in case you're wondering, after Archelaus was removed, um, that's when the pilots were installed, the governors. Pilate uh, uh, was... Um, was the fifth governor in that place, and that was the, the leadership during this time. But people were familiar with this, and Jesus is telling them about this time that he will leave and come back. Acts 2, 32-36 says this, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this uh, that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel know therefore, or therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is what happens after Jesus ascends. He goes to receive his kingdom. He is verified by the Father. His work is complete. He accomplished all that he was called to accomplish. He goes to prepare a place for his people. He is crowned king when he goes to heaven. He's going to a faraway place. That will take some time before he returns. He's going to receive his rightful kingdom. And then he's going to return to his people. And what's going to take place during that time is an opportunity to res respond. Then he's going to return, it says. Look at verse 12. He went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then do what? Verse 12. At the end. What? Return. So... 
Here's what he does, verse 13. Before he leaves, look at this. He calls 10 of his servants, literally doulas, slaves, right? His slaves, the people to submit to, to him. Now, 10 is not significant. It oftentimes in, the, uh, in Jewish heritage refers to a, um, a completion. But here he gives, he gives out 10 minas, which is, we see later, one mina each. And one mina in the, is a one Greek coin, which is worth 100 drachma, which is one day's wage. So uh, one mina equals 100 drachma, which is one day's wage. So here what they're receiving is about three months worth of wage. They're not receiving a lot of, of money. Now listen, this reminds you about the par- uh, to the parable of, reminds you of the parable of the talents. You remember that? Um, but this is different in the sense that here at this point, the, the point is uh, that everyone receives this equal amount. And what he's referring to here is salvation, faith, just the basics of Christianity, where as in Matthew 25, when he speaks of the talents, he's referring to, to gifts and everyone having a different measure of gifts and, and using them for God's glory. Here, he's referring to just the basics. He's referring to salvation. Before he left, right, he gives these 10 minas, this, this gift of equal proportion, one basic task, living out your faith, knowing Christ, following him, uh, experiencing his salvation, being made holy, evangelism, having salvation for yourself. Uh, I mean, this is just the basic of being a true disciple. That's what's on the table here. This is what's being exemplified. He's pointing to just true salvation, true discipleship, or the lack thereof. And he said to them before he left, engage in business. Look at this, verse 13. Engage in business until I come, meaning before I come, do something productive with what I give you. Do something productive. This is just a call to true discipleship. Grow, be holy, serve the church, be evangelistic, grow in your knowledge of the word, your understanding of the word, your Christ-likeness. This is what Jesus is referring to with this parable. But verse 14, it says, we're introduced to the citizens. Now, this is the first response, okay? This is the first response here. These are the, this is, this is the picture of the first responders. I told you that there were gonna be three responses here. Verse 14 says, but his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying what? We do not want this man to reign over us. I mean, this is reminiscent of Archelaus. And this is pointing to the fact, even though Christ was not evil, Christ was good, he had the right to reign over. This points us to the fact that this is the attitude of the first group while he's gone. This will be the picture of the first response of people while he's gone during this time of opportunity. It will be to explicitly reject him. Jesus says in John 15, 25, They hated me without what? Cause. Archelaus, they hated with the right cause. Jesus, they hated with the wrong cause. This is gonna first start in Jerusalem and then it's gonna move on to the ends of the earth. There will be explicit rejection. But I want you to notice something very interesting here. It says this. 
Look at verse 14, just for a second. Look down at your text. But what? His citizens. Every single person on the face of the planet is truly under his reign and rule. He's created them for his glory. And yet they what? Reject him. But that doesn't mean that he's not king over the universe. Right? They're his citizens. They were created for his glory. And there is a rejection here. And he will return. And he will be king over all. Revelation 19 says this. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, what? And Lord of Lords, he is the king. Now, follow along here, because we gotta move. It says in verse 14, we do not want this man to reign over us, right? Who does he think he is to reign over us, this man? Anything other than the king. Verse 15 shows us his return. When he returned, having received the kingdom, right? Uh, he goes up to heaven. Uh, he, he receives the kingdom from the father. After the opportunity is over, then he returns. He ordered then the servants to whom he had, been, he had given these, these gifts to, to be called to him that he might know what they had gained by doing business. Those who professed to be his subjects, he wanted proof when he returned that they had obeyed what he said. This is a time of reckoning, that it's a time of revealing. It's a time of knowing what would be gained by the faith that they supposedly had. And so we see here this first category of true believers and then the second category, which is a false believer. Verse 16, it says, the first came before him saying, Lord, your mina has made us 10 minas more. Now look at the way that that first servant says that. Look at what your mina has done. It's not even been mine. He takes no credit for this. He doesn't say, look what I've done. He says, look what essentially the faith that you have given me has produced. It's produced salvation and holiness and righteousness and service and love and evangelism and growth spiritually. Look at what this true faith has produced. And this is what he's saying here. I've served you and look at what has been done. He takes no credit. It's your mina. Look at what your gift has produced. It's produced 10 minas more. The issue is not how much it's produced. Some people do have various giftings in the same faith. Some people produce more. Some people are, are meant to lead the whole thing. And there will be a lot of strain, but there will be a lot of reward in heaven. And some people, they will lead one person to Christ over the course of their life, even though they try as hard as they can to be faithful. But the issue here is faithfulness, not results. That's why he's given them all equal portion here. That's the picture here. He earns 10 minus more. Look what the, look what this, the master says. Well done, good servant. You've heard that before? That's what will be heard by the faithful believers when Jesus returns. Well done, good and faithful servant. He says this, because you have been faithful in very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. In essence here, um, 
And Jesus is just giving him more. And that's the picture of grace here. Is that whether in this life or the next, Jesus will just continue to show you grace upon grace upon grace upon grace as a true disciple. Uh, you'll inherit the kingdom of heaven for the faith that he has given you and the fruit that his faith has produced in you. I mean, this is just grace. This is just grace. The second one said this, Lord, your mina has made five minas. I mean, the same attitude, right? Your mina has made five minas, right? I mean, it doesn't matter here that there's less. It just matters that there was a faithfulness, right? And this is a true believer under, the, under Christ and what he will respond like when he returns, right? And he said to him, you are to be over five cities, no less faithful, right? No less faithful. This is not a significant gift. I mean, this is important. Do you know in Matthew 25, when he speaks of all the talents, those are like incredibly uh, large portions of money that he's referring to. Like all these gifts and what he's pointing us to in Matthew 25 is, man, your giftings are so important. They will be used to serve the church in such a way that beyond your understanding and realization. I mean, that's what he's pointing to in Matthew 25. Here he's pointing to, man, this just, this just little undeserved faith that he has given to those who truly know him will produce so much fruit in their lives, though small, and they will just receive grace upon grace upon grace on into eternity. And it doesn't matter the results. What is pointed to here is just faithfulness. You understand this? So now we see the third one and we're introduced to the second category, which is the false disciple. We've seen the true disciple. Now we're seeing the false disciple. And so, and then finally, after that, we'll see this explicit rejection. There's only three categories that you can be in. A true disciple, a, a one who thinks he's a true disciple, and one who explicitly rejects Christ. That's it. So then another comes. Now, I wanted to point this out to you in verse 20. Another here, the, the Greek word here is really, really interesting because it means of another kind. The Greek word here includes the word heteros, right? Which in English today, you think of heterodox or versus orthodox, not the same kind of teaching, but a different kind of teaching, right? You think of hetero meaning different. This is a slave of a different kind. It's a false disciple and it's evidenced by his life. And this is such a reality as even Matthew tells us in Matthew 7. And we gotta make a big deal out of this because do you know the gospels, like that is one of the main themes of the gospels, false discipleship. I don't know why we are so quick to affirm people or so quick to think that because you make a profession, you're a true disciple. I mean, the, the gospels are full of false disciples. Your Christianity has gotta be judged according to the word of God. There's such a reality of false discipleship in the scriptures. You have, we have to take that seriously. And that's what's being taken seriously here. Those who will profess, those who go to church, those who say I'm a Christian, those who are moral. The other seven are not shown here, but it's assumed we don't need to deal with them because there's, a, there's just really three categories here, right? They say this. He says this in verse 20. Here's your mina, uh, right? Verse 20. Um, 
which I have laid in a handkerchief. I did nothing with it. That's the essence here. I did nothing with it. I, I laid it in a napkin, literally. I put it in a handkerchief and I went on with my life. That's the picture. That's the false disciple. The one who has put it in, uh, put this faith that they have quote unquote received into a napkin, into a handkerchief, folded it up, put it on the dresser and went on with their life. I mean, I don't know how you could expect to be a true disciple at that point. And that's what's being pointed to here. It's my life. I, I got this faith, I'm good, right? But now it's my life. I, I wanna be the king. I, I, I wanna be in charge. He laid it in a handkerchief. He says, because I was afraid of you and you are a severe Man, the point is here, what severe means here is an exacting man. I know that you account for people's lives and their morality and whether or not they're right or wrong with God and whether or not they honor God. I knew that to be the case. So here's what I did, the very bare minimum. I profess to know you, I received you so that I don't have to receive this judgment from you. I know you're an exacting man. You're gonna come and give an account. Everyone's gonna have to give an account. So I got this faith and I put it in a handkerchief and I went on with my life so that at least I could say that I got this whole thing done with and that I'm right with God. But there's really this resent there. There's this resentfulness for the people like that, right? They really just resent God. How dare you make me live according to what you required of me? You're go you've gone away and now you're gonna come back and you're gonna exact from me my life. This is my life. He says, I, I know that you're, you're, you're a man who, who reaps what he did not sow. Meaning this, you're not the real Messiah. You're not the real God. My life isn't really accountable to you. I, you're gonna try to reap from my life. This is my life. And what he's really referring to here, if you've been reading along in John with us, we've read a passage similar to this, which is like the disciples were gonna go out and, and they were gonna reap what they did not sow. Meaning this, they were gonna bear the, see the fruit of true salvation from what the, the work that the prophets did all the way back in the Old Testament. They were gonna receive what they didn't sow. Well, that's what they were saying about Jesus. You're gonna be a man who reaps what but you didn't sow this, meaning this fruit doesn't belong to you. You're not the true Christ. You're not the real Messiah. You're not the chosen one. This doesn't belong to you. That's what they're saying about Jesus. And, and here's this man is exactly saying that about his own life. You're an exacting man. I got it done with. I, I, I got your faith. I put it in a handkerchief. I went on with my life. I knew you were going to come back and exact this. But if I truly am honest, that I'm resentful about that. I just did what I needed to do because I knew that you have high standards. And, uh, I, but at, at the heart of it, I really don't believe that, that you are worthy of my life. He gives a pitiful reason. These are the grounds he gives. And so, verse 22, Jesus condemns him with his own words. What does that mean? Well, Jesus says this. If you really believe that, and you believed that was that exacting and that severe, then you would have made sure at least that you did what was right by my standards. And so the issue is that somebody who does that, the issue is that they don't, they don't really believe. Because if you really believed that he was the king, and even though he was exacting and severe, 
you would make sure your life matches what he is requiring, which is salvation through him and the fruit that proves you're a true disciple. So he condemns him with his own words. Verse 22, you wicked servant, there we can tell this is a false disciple, right? Wicked servant. You knew that I was a severe man taking what I did not deposit, reaping what I did not sow, even if that was the case, right? He's saying, why then did you not put my money in a bank? There was no banks at this time. They would bury it or they would give it to the lender at a lender's table and they would do something with it. I mean, he didn't even do the bare minimum. And at my coming, I might've collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. They said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but from the one. Now this is still in the parable. Jesus is not talking outside the parable at this point. He is, who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is saying this. He's saying, um, if you really had fear of me, true fear of me, you would have done something. I mean, Philippians 2 says, um, uh, yeah, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not, always, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your what? Salvation with fear and trembling. I mean, show the fruit of true salvation. And this is Paul speaking of when he's gone, but I mean, the same is true while Jesus is gone. This is what should happen here. And so there's no, there's no gain here. He's resentful. And he took what he had, verse 24, the master did, meaning this. Meaning the ones who really have faith, they're just gonna get more and more grace. They're gonna have true salvation. In heaven, you're gonna have rewards that you don't even, you can even fathom right now. For, for being faithful to the master. But the one who has not, meaning this, the one who just thinks he has, doesn't really have any, what, even what he has, which is not truly anything, but what he thinks he has. But there is it in a sense where unbelievers, you have so much. I mean, if you're sitting here right now and you're an unbeliever, you are surrounded by believers. I'm teaching you the word of God. You have so many opportunities to respond. And so what you think you have, the, and even what you've been given as a general grace around you, even that then will be taken away and it will be revealed that you really have what? Nothing. Even what he thinks he has is the point here, will be taken away. Right? And so that's the second category, the false disciple. And that's judgment. That's judgment. He says worthless slave, worthless. That's judgment for false believers. That's reward for true believer. And now verse 7, 27, we see the judgment of the blatant rejectors. Now he goes back to that, to that crowd. He goes back to the ones who followed him. Verse 27 but as for those enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, that's the third category or the first category when we talked about it, bring them here and slaughter them before me. I mean, this is pretty obvious here. What Jesus is speaking to is the same judgment, really, but it's the judgment of those who reject him. And at the time of his coming, it will be 
exposed, revealed, and they will face his judgment, which this is a very strong word that Jesus is using. It means literally they will be completely destroyed. Slaughter means not just like destroyed, but like completely destroyed. And so the picture here is very clear. Jesus is teaching about salvation. He's teaching about what to expect before he returns, the time after his ascension, the time before his second coming. It's gonna be a time of opportunity to, his, to respond to his salvation. There will be three categories of people, the ones who are true disciples, whose faith bears fruit as evidence of true salvation. There will be secondly, false disciples, those who profess, go on with their life, are really just um, resentful towards a savior who would expect so much, has no right to their, li- to, his, to their lives, and they're gonna shown to be false disciples, be shown to be false disciples. And then there's these blatant rejectors who just outright say it. We don't want this man to reign over us. And the true disciples will receive grace upon grace, heavenly reward. The false disciples will receive judgment as well as those who blatantly reject him. Let me encourage you. This is the time. We sit in this time of opportunity. Which one of these people are you? Which one of these people are are you? And let me encourage you to repent of your sins and to be faithful to the master. Obey his words that he told us before he left. To produce fruit like he commanded the the servants to do so that when he comes back, he might find you to be a true disciple evidenced by the productive life that you have lived as a Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. It's just so clear to us. And I ask you by your grace that you would use this in our lives for your glory and your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this resource from the Field Church in Mandeville, Louisiana. We pray that it helps you joyfully make Jesus Christ your treasure.